This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campus is joined with us over in Appleton and Stevens Point, and let's recite together. The Apostles' Creed, this is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe here at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us this morning. On this Labor Day weekend, the unofficial ending of our summer here in Wisconsin. But back to things as normal as we go into September. And uh, we're going to begin our first Wednesday. Every, uh, the first Wednesday of every month, we have a, a special gathering here uh, for everyone at the church. This uh, Wednesday, we're also going to be having a uh, picnic and the whole deal along with that. We're going to have a lot of fun. I want you to come out and be a part of that as we start getting back into the normal life of the church, okay? So this Wednesday, come on out, be a part of it, and uh, we're going to be having a, a panel up here with uh, Bishop Ed's going to be here, I'm going to be here, different staff members are going to be here, and open up for spiritual questions and stuff like that that you might have. This is spiritual questions, not whatever happened to your cat questions, all right? So uh, hopefully <laughs> this will go well. And then as our small groups start kicking back up again and our regular Wednesday nights for the youth and stuff. So we're excited about getting back into the regular groove as we head towards the fall. Amen. Boy, I've had a really challenge this year, summer, trying to talk. This Bell's palsy is going away, but then I had oral surgery couple of days ago. So I feel like a pin cushion, just ah, everywhere. So hopefully I'll get through this. <clears throat> For a guy like me, not being able to talk is a trial and tribulation, I have to tell you. Uh, looking at uh, the scriptures this morning, reading from Paul's epistle, which is a fancy word for letter, uh, that he wrote to the Colossian church. He says this, he says, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, I could have really taken this phrase from almost anywhere in the New Testament. The phrase grace and peace is repeated over and over and over again. One of the things that early Christians often said to each other was this phrase, grace and peace. Why? Because these are foundational to the Christian experience. Grace, of course, means 
unmerited favor. God just likes you because. Okay, you don't earn it or anything like You know, we all have people that when you see them coming, we kind of groan. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, here they go, you know. Hopefully you're not related to them. But, uh, um, you know, and then there's people you see and you just light up when you see them, right? You just go, whoa, here, here they are. And uh, you have to understand when God looks at you, he lights up. He does. And you say, why? He just does. It's unmerited. It's grace. God's wonderful grace in our life. But there's grace and then there is peace. And on this Labor Day weekend, a weekend of resting from our labors, I thought I'd talk a little bit about what it means to walk in the peace of God. Peace, according to Webster, means freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts or emotions. And anyone who's not walked in peace know what that's like. It's really quite disturbing. God wants us to walk in his peace. Now, uh, what are the uh, books, we call them books, but they're letters and different things in the New Testament. Uh, there's one called the book to the Hebrews. Now, um, this, no one really knows who wrote this one. All the other books have, you know, who the author is. There's speculation about who wrote it. A lot of people think Paul wrote it, but the wording is a little different. But it's, it's, it's a little different. And uh, it's, uh, it's a little difficult to understand. If you want to start reading the Bible, I always encourage you in your faith, you know, start with, you know, the Gospels, Gospel of John or something simple and read through the New Testament. And you might want to skip over Hebrews at first <laughs> until you get more of a handle on some things. It gets a little confusing. Uh, it's called the book of Hebrews because it was written to Jews, Jewish Christians. In the beginning, all Christians were Jewish. I don't know if you know that, but that's the fact. In fact, they did not think you could become a Christian in early Christianity, the earliest of it, unless you were a Jew first. Uh, quite a change after uh, God started revealing uh, the direction the church is supposed to go to. But again, a lot of them were Jewish people. And this particular letter is written to just Jewish Christians. And if you don't understand the history and stuff of the Old Testament, it can get really in the weeds. And even those of us who do understand it, it's even it, at times Hebrews gets a little confusing. But one of the things that he makes an argument about here is he's trying to use the analogy of the Old Testament. He says, we all know the story about where Moses came, told Pharaoh, let my people go. And then God set them free and they went into the wilderness and, and then supposed to, they're supposed to go right into the promised land and enjoy this freedom. Well, they were a real problem and they just couldn't get there. And so God just left them out in the wilderness for 40 years until their children and grandchildren went into the promised land because they, they just couldn't shake uh, their experience as slaves. It was so driven into them, uh, they, they, they just couldn't seem to get over it. And he uses this analogy about the Sabbath. Now, in the Old Testament, Sabbath was a really big deal. In the New Testament, much of the teaching of the New Testament, as far as most Christians today read, leads away from any special holy day of the week. Christians celebrate a Sunday. But even then, it's not like you know, the Old Testament, unless you're a Seventh-day Adventist, they're Christians, wonderful people. They do think we're supposed to be as serious about the Sabbath as they were in the Old Testament. Most of us don't agree, but we still love them. And, but, uh, you know, the Sabbath was a really big deal in the Old Testament. Saturday, you couldn't do anything. It was, you know, the Sabbath rest and stuff. Well, in the letter, this letter, whoever wrote this, the Hebrews Christians said, look, there is a Sabbath there's a resting that we are supposed to take place in. And we read about it here in the fourth chapter and the ninth verse. He says, there remains then a Sabbath rest 
for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. In faith, when we come to Christ, we're supposed to rest from the weight and the burdens of this life and enter into God's rest. So he says, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example, these guys who came out of the Egypt who didn't ever get it, uh, don't follow their example of disobedience. So he says, let's not be like them. Let's get this. God does something great. We come to faith. Our sins are forgiven. Now let's enter into the rest of God. Don't be like the children of Israel who came out of Egypt but never quite got this. Now the question is, how do we get there? Well, we talked about it last week a little bit. We're talking about the power that the mind plays in our faith. In the book of Romans, we read, the mind governed by the flesh, that old nature, is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Two of you, thank you very much. Wake up your neighbor, all right? <laughs> It'll be over soon. Hang in there, all right? Life and peace. We're supposed to be experiencing this peace if we have our head in the right place. Now, Paul writes these words. He says, for though we live in the world, which obviously we do, we don't fight, we don't wage war as the world does. He's talking about this, this fight in your head. He says, the weapons we fight are with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Why is this important? Because if you don't get this, you're not going to get to peace. You'll get out of the promised land, or you'll get out of Egypt, but you're not going to get into this peace that Christ wants you to walk in. And the only way to find it is to start controlling the way that you think. Jesus wants us to find rest and peace. A very famous verse in the uh, Gospels, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and virtually anybody walking in this life becomes weary and burdened. He says, come to me, and I will give you what? Rest. He wants to give us rest, not just to forgive us of our sins, but to bring us to this state of peace. But to get there, we have to conquer our old thinking, which is the thinking of fear and worry. In Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he says these words, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Now, this is hard. Why does he have to tell us this? Because our nature is to worry and fret. We rehearse things over and over in our heads, uh, things that never happen, quite frankly, but yet they weigh heavily on us. And if you worry enough, it'll make you physically sick. It will actually affect your body. Your stomach get upset. Your systems will be all out of place, just out of fret and worry. And sometimes we think, well, worry means I care, you know? You say some, you know, some of your, to someone you care about, you know, I really worry about you. Well, I know what you're trying to say, but, but don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't be worrying and get all freaked out all the time. Ah, you know, about everybody in your life. Learn to walk in peace. Don't worry about your life and get all caught up in the things of life, Jesus says. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what about your body, what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. 
Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Ah! For the pagans run after all these things. These are the unbelievers. And your heavenly father knows that you need them, so he knows that you need them. But don't get caught up in, you know, like the pagans run after all these things. I always call the Friday, uh, Black Friday after Thanksgiving, the running of the pagans. This is when the pagans run and they want everything, and they kill each other over a TV set or whatever because they got to have things, 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 things. They become obsessed by these things. Don't get crazy about this stuff. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. What things? These things that you need will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Have you noticed this? If you think, gee, I wonder what will happen tomorrow. Don't worry. Something. <laughs> something will come. There's always something coming at you. Uh, we read again in Luke where he says again, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? If you can't even do this little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And, and the scripture really warns us about getting caught up into the cares of this life because these cares and these worries, the opposite of peace. Remember, peace, free of all this stuff. You're walking in a place where you don't have the peace. You haven't really entered God's rest. You've been born again. You come to church and stuff, but you're always freaking out in your mind. You're going to be like the children of Israel who came out and didn't experience the peace. And, and when you worry about stuff, this will work against the word of God in your life. Jesus gave this parable. A parable is a fancy word for story. He told them many things in parables. We read in Matthew, the 13th chapter. And here's one of the stories. He said, a farmer went out to sow seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came, <laughs> ate it all up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil, sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. And then, of course, the good ones, still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160, 30 times what was sown. And then he says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, the disciples, it tells us after this, comes to him and goes, what are you talking about? They didn't know what he was talking about. Oftentimes, Jesus would tell these stories, and they had no idea, and they would get confused and come talk to him. Uh, eventually, it got to the point where I think they just quit asking altogether. Uh, they just got comfortable with the fact that they didn't know what he was talking about half the time. That's why when we read around Easter time where Jesus tells them in black and white, we're going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me, beat me, kill me, and then I'll raise on the third day. And then when it all happened, they were shocked. How were they not shocked? He told them what was going to happen. Because they actually got to the point, they kind of got callous. They really weren't listening anymore. Because they know what he's talking about. Going to Jerusalem, punished, raised. They didn't know what he's talking about. So on this one of these rare occasions, they came to him and said, well, what are you saying with the seeds? So then he explains to him. He says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom of God, okay, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away what was sown in their hearts. This, this is the seed sown among the path. These are where the birds came and just, you know, as soon as it lands. And if you're here this morning, unless you 
are hearing this for the first time, you're probably not in this category. These are the people who hear about God and faith and stuff, and they kind of just look at you cross-eyed, and, uh, and they just go, they don't get it. Nothing takes root in them. A lot of people like that in the world. If you're here, chances are you're not in that category because you're still here listening. Uh, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word, the good news, and at once receives it with joy. This is awesome. But since they have no root, there's no depth in them. They last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So if you've been here for a while and people have gotten on you, you know, why are you going, you know, you're crazy, your friends are giving you a hard time, why are you going to that weird cult church or whatever different things that they're saying, uh, oh, my boyfriend broke up with me, oh, you know, I can't go to church anymore. I mean, these people, they, they don't have much shallow, much root them. They're very shallow. As soon as any problem comes because of their faith, they give up on their faith. I'm assuming most of you listening to me right now are not in that category. So there's two categories left. We're not in the first and the second. The third one, and then there's the fourth. The fourth one's a good one. Well, then what we need to worry about is the third one. What is the third one? What is the threat to us who are walking in faith? He says, well, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Are you seeing this battle between the word of God, which brings life and power? We talk about how powerful. The word of God is powerful. Yes, indeed. Amazingly, the thing that can choke it out of you is worry. Or if you, you need to be careful because if you get in all this worse, it'll choke out the very thing that'll set you free. He warns about the deceitfulness of, of riches, you know. And what is the deceitfulness? Here's the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceit is this. Wealth convinces you that if you have enough, everything will be fine. <laughs> That's the deceit. Because the truth is everything is not fine. And there's a lot of people who have experienced this. Now, if you're smart, which most of us sadly are not, uh, you can benefit from increased income. Most Americans don't, quite frankly. You know, people who make $30,000 a year think, man, if I could double, if I could make 60, my life will be set. As soon as they make 60, they're in bigger trouble than when they were making 30. And boy, if I can just get another, you know, 30, I'll just get 90, I got it made to get another 30, and they're in bigger trouble than when they had the 30. And it keeps going. I know people who make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and they are slaves. They can barely go out for dinner. Money is so tight for them. Do you know why? Because we fall in this trap. We go, we're going to buy a house, and, and, the, and the banker said, well, let's see how much of a house you can afford. When they tell you that, be careful. What they're saying is, we're going to see how much of your money we can possibly take from you, and you can still survive. That's what they're saying to you. Well, how much of a car can you, so let's say, how much of a car can you afford? I don't want to know how much I can afford. I want to know, you know, if I can afford, then, then, then let me live down here. You know, step back a little bit. You know, I want that fancy BMW. Yeah, well, if you've got extra money, you can do that, great. But a lot of people drive fancy cars and houses, and then they're miserable because they can't do anything. They can barely go on vacation, being go out for dinner, constantly stressed out because they've been tricked by the deceitfulness of wealth. Oh, yeah, more, it's just, everything's going to be fine, and it's not fine. You need to be careful because life will suck the life out of you. I'm on your side here. I'm trying to help you. Watch out for this stuff. You know, and all the worries and always fretting about everything will choke the word. Now, what would you think about that? We preach the word of God. The word of God is powerful, right? 
Nothing can stop the word of God. Well, apparently, there's some things that can make it difficult in your life. Choke that very powerful word in you, and it's called worry. We read a story about worry in Luke, the 10th chapter. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named, called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. So this is Mary and Martha. They have a brother by the name of Lazarus. This is the family he becomes very good friends with. Later, Lazarus gets sick and died. Jesus comes and he raises Lazarus. That's who this is. That's when he first meets this family. And uh, so anyway, Jesus is extremely popular at this time. He's a rock star, right? I mean, multitudes are following him. And this very famous Jesus comes into the house. And you can imagine Martha, you know, man of Jesus is coming to your house. You want everything to look good, right? You want everything to be just right. And Martha's running around and she's trying to get everything fixed and, 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 and getting everything prepared. And nobody's helping her. And all the moms said, amen. You all know this story, right? No, I'm trying to get stuff. Nobody is helping. What's wrong with you people? And she gets very frustrated. And she comes uh, to Jesus because Mary's sitting on her butt, literally. Uh, but not in a lazy way. She's being caught up in the words of Jesus. Okay, so Martha was distracted by all the preparations. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to get off her keister and get to work and help me. Now you would think, Jesus would say, Mary, come on, get up, help out. But he doesn't. He talks to Martha, says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. Why is this a problem? This worry, this upset, this paranoia, this freaking out all the time will choke the word in your life. He said, few, few things are needed, and indeed only one in this case was the word of God. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her, so he does not tell her to get up. He tells her to relax. And we all know how much fun it is when you're stressed and someone tells you to relax. Very effective. Tell the next person you know is all stressed out, just relax. See how it goes. It doesn't go very well. But in this case, it's what she needed to do. Don't let life make you crazy. Don't let it get you distracted. Don't be like the children of Israel who come out of Egypt, but they can't ever relax. Everything's always a major ordeal, always fearful, always worried, always concerned about something. Breathe. Jesus said again, come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. So, well, Pastor, how do we do that? Well, Peter talks about it. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We all have anxieties. We all have cares, worries, and things. But we need to learn in prayer to toss it on God. Otherwise, it becomes such a weight on us, and it's something we need to beware of. That's why the warnings about worry and stuff. Worry isn't a sign that you care. Worry is a bad sign that you're letting things fall on you that you shouldn't let fall on you. Jesus promised us rest by helping us with our burdens and cares and our anxieties, encouraging us to 
cast or toss our cares on him. So now, we all struggle at various times with these things. I mean, nobody here is perfect by a long shot, uh, including me, especially me. I can't say I, I have a lot of issues in my life. I don't generally struggle with a lot with worry. I'm not a worrier by nature. Anybody who knows me knows I don't freak out about things. I just, I don't know, I'm just not, I'm glad I don't. Because <laughs> I've seen people who do, Ugh, you know, it's an awful thing. You know, but even I, at times, can be obsessed by things that get on my head. And we need to shake that stuff off. So what happens when you see someone who's struggling with worries? Are we to yell at them? Are we to rebuke them? Are we to say, haven't you listened to Pastor Mark? No, that's not. <laughs> well, God bless you for that, but uh, that's really not the answer. The answer is, uh, in Galatians, Paul writes this, hey, carry each other's burdens. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was to carry our burdens. We're supposed to cast our burdens on him. Yeah, yeah, but sometimes we need to come along people and help them, okay? Uh, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ, he says, which is what? He wants us to be free of burdens. So while ideally we should be able to walk in a place of faith where we're not carrying a lot of burdens, sometimes it just gets on us. And the best thing we do is have other people help us, uh, which means you've got to be honest and vulnerable. You know, if your life is miserable and you're horrible and you walk into church, everybody says, how you doing? You say, great, you're lying, okay? It's not great. Now, I get there's that social niceness, but there's some people you should be honest enough to say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing great. How you doing? Actually, I'm struggling. I'm really having a hard time. I got all this stuff coming against me. I got all these concerns. So you can find someone who can encourage you and pray for you because we're supposed to carry each other's burdens. We're not supposed to be out there on our own. Everybody needs help from one time or another carrying burdens. And I'm going to end with this uh, story again from the Old Testament where Moses brings the children of Israel out and they're in the wilderness. And we read in Exodus chapter 17 about the Amalekites. Now the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, yo, Joshua, go get a bunch of guys. Go out there and fight those Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with my staff of God in my hands and we're going to cheer you on. Okay, so he gets a bunch of guys. They go out there and Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron, who's the quarterback and her wide receiver, they all go up there with the coach Moses and uh, they went on top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Now, there's a lot of weird things in the Bible. and There's a strange thing that happens from time to time. I think God does these things just to teach us a lesson. He's trying to teach us a lesson here. Now, I don't know at what point it dawned on Moses what was happening. But when he's up there going, come on, guys, they're winning. And they said, man, that's awesome. And they started losing. Win, lose, win. You know, all of a sudden you do the math. Keep the hands up. So he's keeping the hands up. And of course, it gets hard after a while. They probably start fighting in the morning. The battle's not over till sunset, the Bible says. That's a long time to keep your hands up. So anyway, when Moses' hands grew tired, the Bible says they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. I'd prefer something a little more comfortable than a rock. But, uh, you know, here, have a seat. So they get this rock. He sits on the rock. And Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset because he, he couldn't do it by himself. 
Now, even just someone holding my arms up all day long would get really uncomfortable, I would think. It would be a horrible situation. All the blood would drain out of your hands. And, uh, but, but they did this because if his hands came down for some reason, they'd start losing. But as long as they were up, they prevailed, and they eventually won. I think God put this little scenario in there just to teach us a lesson. Look, nobody can do this all the time on their own. And even the strongest, even Moses, the big coach, needed help. We all need help from time to time. It's not a sign of weakness. It's just a sign that we are mortal and we need people to stand with us. Because if we can, let, if we can learn to walk free of our concerns and when we struggle, let others help us, we'll be able to get to this place just not of just grace, but also of peace. Because we're supposed to be walking in peace. Man, And it's a wonderful place to be. Not to walk around with all this heaviness on your head and learn to control your thoughts. If your thoughts are constantly rehearsing your failures or predicting your losses, you will be one miserable soul. Even though God loves you and you're walking in his grace, you want to get to a place of peace so that you can really enjoy this walk. And then the writer of Hebrews ends with this. He says, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of, our, of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Who does all this wonderful stuff? The God of peace. I'm going to invite our ushers to come now as we get ready to serve communion. So we turn our attention to what all of this is about. Jesus, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He died on that cross for us. His body broken so we could be made whole. His blood shed so we could have forgiveness of sins. But again, not just to come out of the slavery of the world and then to fail to walk in his peace as the Hebrew writer warns us. Don't be like those guys. Don't, man, don't experience this great grace and then forget the peace part of it. All right, because they made a huge mistake in doing that. He warns us we need to not only experience the grace but also walk in his peace. And if you're listening to me this morning and you're thinking, you know, I've, I've kind of messed up in this area. I need to reset. Or maybe you've never really come to faith in the first place and experienced any of this. We're going to say a prayer together. And if you'll pray this prayer with me, it'll give you a chance to kind of reset and maybe take your first steps of faith this morning or wherever you're at. But let's bow our heads together and let's say this prayer together. Say, Dear Jesus, you said we should bring our burdens to you and that you would give us rest. This is what I choose right now. Come into my life. Lift my burden. And bring me your peace. Amen.